Thank you so much. It's so good to see so many of you from all across the country. Please feel free to put in your uh, your hometown and your state from where you uh, hail from tonight. I think it's just encouraging and empowering to know that there's a lot of people like you and like me who love America that want to arm ourselves with these principles of liberty and freedom so we can do the, the work that God needs us to do. I'm Jolene Jackson. I am the senior instructor for Moms for America. I think I've been here the longest next to our president and founder, Kimberly Fletcher. I've been with Moms for America for 14 years. Uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor to, to be a part of the work that we do, the mamas. When I teach in the evening, typically, I'm so sorry, I'm going to give an, a, uh, an excused absence to my husband tonight. He has a meeting uh, that he said, Julini, I've missed the last two meetings. I just have to be there for this meeting. He felt badly. So it's just little old me tonight. Uh, but uh, it's, these are some really good principles. So he wishes he could be here. Bless his heart. He's just that kind of guy that, it, it, you know, he, he hates to disappoint me, but he had to be at this. Uh, and so it is me. And um. We're going to dive into principles eight, nine, and 10. Now we're on the fifth lesson of the 5,000 year leap series. Okay. Our text comes from this book, the 5,000 year leap. I like to encourage everyone to use the student manual edition because that's fill in the blanks. You can take better notes and you can prepare yourself someday when you are going to have to teach this material to your children, to your grandchildren. You might bring a, a few couples in your neighborhood that are like-minded and you can go through, uh, read two or three or four paragraphs, fill in the blanks and then stop after a, maybe every heading and have a discussion. And so it prepares you to kind of get into the mindset when you use the student edition to be a teacher someday. You gain knowledge as you give it away, but until then, keep coming online, keep learning, keep raising your understanding of, the, of these beautiful uh, principles of this material that we study. And, and someday you too might be teaching uh, classes in your study groups in your neighborhoods, and you will see how transformative that is when you have these study groups. So, you know, I love the 5,000 year leap, these 27 principles, they will become like your best friends as you begin to understand them and write them on your heart and in your mind. And as you memorize them, it was these principles, these ideas that our founders used to establish this nation. I mean, honestly, uh, for five millennial previously, we had used practically the same ox and cart and spinning well. And then under these principles that were uh, engraven into our founding documents, particularly the, the Constitution, it, within less than 200 years, we literally put a man on the moon living under these you know, principles of freedom. And so we are on lesson number five. And, you know, when you understand these principles, we know that they work. We know within the first hundred years of living under these principles, uh, even though we had 6% of the world's population, we are producing over 50% of the world's wealth. And, and those statistics are in a book called The Making of America that the Healing of America has, pulled, uh, has been pulled from. And they're actually in the Making of America. We have a student edition of Making of America. The little cottage meeting that I belonged to years ago, it took us two years. We met every week for two hours to get through the Making of America. 
but we women were change converted women after the two years of study making America. So I'm just giving you some various resources and curriculum that someday you might want to go through and teach in your little neighborhood groups or evening groups. So um, anyways, when you understand these principles, it helps ground you in hope. It gives you the confidence when God says he can heal this nation, you know what it takes to heal the nation. You know what the principles were that made us, you know, this light on the hill. And, and then you begin to understand how the prophecy where he, God says he will heal this land. You know, when you understand his laws and he's his principles that he used to establish this first you know, modern uh, free people in modern times, when you understand them, then you can be a part of the boots on the ground. When things get so bad, they look to people like you that know, you know, these proven uh, ingredients, these ideas, these principles uh, in which, you know, the, the greatest amount of uh, freedom can occur and how, you know, and I've said this before, when uh, we put America's policies first, all ships rise. Our founding fathers wanted our constitution to be our greatest export because it was going to raise the level of prosperity for all people throughout the world. And that's what they meant when they said they wanted this nation to be a light on the, on the hill for all the other nations in the world. And so anyways, I know these are kind of um, sobering days. This is the day after the election yesterday. And I'm not going to lie to you, uh, I just live about 15 minutes from my neighboring Virginia. I can be in Virginia and just a stone's throw. And so it was disheartening for us. We uh, we lost the, the house and we thought we were gonna get the Senate back and we didn't get any of those back. So now our, our, our Republican governor, the first Republican governor we've had in many years is now going up against a, a Democratic um, state legislature. And some of the red states that we saw that are kind of, you know, strongholds uh, didn't fare so well, Kentucky and Ohio, they added abortion rights to the state constitution and legalized marijuana. You know, it's interesting since the overturn of Roe versus Wade a year and a half ago in June of 2022, the, the, the justices said, okay, this was never supposed to be a national issue abortion because if, and our founders intended, if issues aren't addressed in the constitution, that means the federal government shouldn't get involved, that, you know, only limited and carefully defined power should be delegated to the federal government and all other issues should be delegated back to the people and to the states respectively. And so, you know, when they overturned Roe v. Wade a year and a half ago in the Dobbs decision, they put it back for the states to decide. And, and since um, Roe versus Wade was overturned, we've seen seven states that have passed statewide pro-abortion uh, laws, making it easier. And so some would say that they're, they're seeing maybe a weakening of the pro-life movement, um, particularly in some of these redder states that lost some ground uh, yesterday with the election where abortion was kind of a, a leading in the advertisements on television and so forth. And so some are speculating with yesterday's results from the elections, we might be seeing clues or kind of a blueprint for the election next year, the big election. And so I, I don't really know if I believe that because I think right now, uh, I think President Trump is leading in the polls against uh, President Biden. We have a year 
we have, a, a, you know, it's still early, but nevertheless, I think I, it was kind of sobering to me to see some of the results of yesterday's election. And even though we rejoiced a year and a half ago when the Supreme Court overturned, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade and celebrated the, the ending of 50 years of national abortion, did you know within those 50 years of from 1973 to, to 2022, 2022, um, over 60 million abortions occurred in those 50 years. And we know that Cicero in a 106 BC said that, you know, laws that go against the uh, the supreme being, the creator's order of the universe are end up being a scourge to humanity. And just think for 50 years, how abortion has detrimentally affected and impacted lives, destroyed families, and corrupted that covenant relationship that our founders made with God. That, you know, they promised if they stood on his side of the line within the bounds that God has set, that God, his part of the covenant would be he would protect this promised land. And we've seen a weakening of our country as, as we upheld, you know, for 50 years, this abortion law. And now it's been overturned, but, you know, soberingly enough, the people in individual states or some states are going to choose to pass, uh, you know, abortion laws that make it easier. So what I'm saying here is don't lose heart. We can expect miracles. God is a God of miracles. Re remember, I think it was Glenn Beck who said two weeks ago and something I heard him uh, speak at, or my, actually I, I did listen, I heard him speak. He said, God has us. Now, I, we don't need to hear it from Glenn Beck. We can go straight to the source, the word, and know that God has us, that we don't need to fear. He's not giving us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mind. We just need to hold steady and watch and study the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, I truly believe one of the best ways to stay anchored in hope when things don't look so good is to learn these inspirational miracle stories where you can see how God, sometimes when we're at our worst as a nation or an individual or a family, if we turn to God, then he is at his best. All right. So um, let's see the first slide. Trustee's going to uh, uh, run on the PowerPoint tonight. Thank you. So, or I think actually Hannah is. Thank you, Hannah. Okay, let's see the next slide. So on Monday, Al and I uh, went to Valley Forge. It's about three hours from where we live in the DC metro area. Now Valley Forge is in Pennsylvania. And that, um, if, if you don't know what Valley Forge is, it's an encampment where George Washington and the troops stayed for six months during uh, probably one of the bleakest, hardest times of the Revolutionary War. They uh, they had just lost control of Philadelphia. They had come off of, of several bad losses against the British. And so they arrived 20 miles out of Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia in um, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, on about 3,350,000 acres of farmland. And within one month, there was 12,000 troops. They were tired, they were desperate, they were hungry, they were malnutrition, they didn't have proper gear or uniforms or shoes. There was dysentery, there was disease. Of the 12,000 men and about 400 women, there were wives and children of some of the soldiers that did the cooking and the washing the laundry and that kind of thing. 2,000 of them died over that six months, particularly in, in the winter time. So it was a it was a, a terrible time in the war, and they had to quickly um, 
put up these huts as it was getting cold. They, they built about 1,500 to 2,000 of these huts for the 12,000 soldiers to live in. And uh, it said that there wasn't one tree standing at Valley Forge six months later when the troops uh, headed on out. Let's see the next slide. But even, you know, at this dark and terrible time, uh, they stayed the course. And now there's this beautiful arch. You can take, we rode our bikes. There's a five mile loop, but there's like 26 miles of hiking and bike trails. And there's this beautiful arch. It reminds me of the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, but this is the arc to the soldiers and to the officers that were there for six months. It's beautiful. And then there's marvelous statues as you uh, take your bikes uh, through the paths. And um, at George Hamilton, no, no, <laughs> not George Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton was one of George Washington's officers at Valley Forge. I didn't know that. But um, let's see the next slide. So as, as terrible of a time as this was, and they had Christmas there, and Martha came uh, and was with George at this time in Valley Forge. I think Martha was upholding him so he could uphold you know, the troops. But uh, this is where the great picture of George Washington praying out in the woods comes from in Valley Forge. And it, it was said that it was not uncommon for farmers that lived on this land to see the great general out praying in their woods and forests. Uh, Farmer Potts particularly it shows them, saw that instance where he watched him praying, he said. And it's also said that the some of his officers were getting ready to leave. It was just that bad. And they went looking for uh, General Washington and they found him praying and their hearts were pricked and they could not leave him. So uh, knowing that he, you know, was at his wits end too, petitioning the heavens and those, so they stayed on. And, um, and so in their darkest hours, they stayed the course and who would show up a few months later, the statue that Al is standing next to is Captain uh, Frederick von Steuben. He was a, um, a soldier, military man from Prussia. And he came and he whipped the troops into shape. They took uh, George Washington's little ragtag army and where Alice, we ate our lunch right on the little stoop there, but it overlooked, it's called the Grand Parade. And it was in those fields that Captain von Steubing drilled and taught the men how to be true soldiers. And also during this time in the spring of 1778, they got word that France was now going to um, come to their aid and begin to send uh, supplies and soldiers. And so with the arrival of von Steuben to, to train the troops and knowing that France was coming, it was like the, they say Valley Forge was the bleakest hour uh, in our nation's history before we became in the war, in the Revolutionary War. But it was also the turning point. And that spring when they left in June, they had uh, morale was high and they began to, uh, they began to win. Yeah, after after that experience but sometimes you know I think when we're feeling a little depressed get yourself to these inspirational um, places where these miracles occur now it's interesting in Valley Forge 
And there's a brand new visitor center there. And we went there two years ago during COVID and everything was closed down. And so it was nice to see the visitor center, but there's no mention of George Washington praying. And, uh, and, and actually this in Valley Forge, now George Washington and some of his officers rented out some of the uh, houses uh, by farmers in uh, on this land. And um, this is where George Washington had this, that prophetic vision and um, Hannah's gonna put the link to it's a little five-minute clip about um, this vision that he had uh, one day at Valley Forge, where he says an angel came to him and showed him uh, the what was going to come of the war and certain segments of the history of America, what it was going to be. And maybe it was just a tender mercy that God gave to George Washington to reassure him that God had him. So when George Washington came out of his room, there was a, a little a soldier there by the name of uh, Sherman. I think Sherman was his last name. And he recounted this prophetic vision that he just had. And he said, I don't want you to tell anyone what I have told you until I die. And so uh, this uh, officer Sherman waited until George Washington died in 1798, and then he recorded it and submitted it to the Library of Congress. And that story is still on record at the Library of Congress. Now, many people will poo-poo that. I believe it. And I think you should watch. There's, If you just Google the prophetic uh, vision of George Washington at Valley Forge, you will be very inspired. So that's that, that took place there at Valley Forge as well. Okay, so let's see the next slide, Tressie. So the principles one through nine that we have discussed, oh, and this is the, there's a beautiful church there. It's called the George Washington Memorial Church and it's a small little church and it's kind of an old Gothic style, but there's a statue of George Washington between Al and I. And then at the end of several pews are these soldiers that are praying. It's just beautiful. Put this on your bucket list. If you can spend the whole day in Valley Forge, you can rent bikes or they have little trolley tours that will take you around. It's just a, a sacred, beautiful, inspirational place. And you will go reassured that God had them then. God was a miracle back then and he is a God of miracles today. Okay, let's see the next slide, Tressie. Or I think Hannah, sorry, Hannah. So the first um, nine principles might seem a little churchy to you, okay? But I think you need to understand that our founding fathers knew <laughs> that the underpinning of this country was based in godly not godly law, natural law. So uh, our principle one tells us the best way to have strong governments and good relations is to base it on natural law, which is God's law. And principle said the only principle two says the only way free people can survive under this type of government that the founders were going to give us representative government that people had to be good, they had to be virtuous, they had to be looking up to the heavens to maintain a government by the voice of the people. And that the best way that people can remain good is to elect good leaders. Now, I don't know if any of you watched the debate last night, but um, I liked to be honest with you, all of those candidates, they all were quick to profess, you know, their belief in God. And, um, and, and I think, you know, it was DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, and, and Donald Trump is not uh, participating in any of these debates. 
and they're not perfect men. Certainly Donald Trump is not a perfect man, but he is not afraid to, you know, ref reference the word of God and to speak of God as, as did all of those that were debating last night. And, um, and so I, I quite honestly, like all of those that were in the debate, um, because I think that they're better than what we have right now in as far as leadership where much of the agenda that we were seeing pushed at a national level from the executive branch i really think al, al said it's evil personified and you can see it's anti-family and and wreaking havoc it, i heard someone use the word demonic even and those are strong words but they are, are wreaking havoc uh, in homes and with the rising generation there there are a, a lot of anti-god policies and agendas that are being pushed. And so um, you can see, let's see the next slide. Uh, in principle four, our founders knew that without religion, this, this government uh, could not be maintained. Remember, they, they not only wanted knowledge taught schools with the Northwest Ordinance, but they wanted morality and religion taught. That's how they were gonna maintain this type of government. And then principle five, the, our founders knew that all things were created by God. Therefore, we're all dependent, responsible to him, even for people that say they don't believe in God. I tell my children, it's like saying you don't believe in gravity. You can say you don't believe, but the minute you step off the cliff, you're going down. You're going to feel the effects of gravity. And the minute you shoot on over, you're going up. You're going to have to stand before our creator. Number six, all mankind, our founders believed, were created equal. And that doesn't mean equal outcomes or equal results, but that we were equal in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the law and in the protection of our rights and that the proper role of government was to protect these rights, but not to provide equal things. And we've gotten confused about uh, that today where, where we think we have this uh, sense of entitlement that the government should, you know, uh, level the playing field and that was completely contrary to what the founders intended okay so let's see the next slide so we're on to slide sorry this is a long introduction but we will get through um principles eight nine and ten so principle number eight uh, is says that all mankind is endowed by their creator <laughs> by cert with certain inalienable rights all right now our founders uh, wanted to make sure that the natural uh, the national government wouldn't intervene in local affairs of the people. The founders felt that uh, they were to protect the inalienable rights of the people by, uh, by maybe an overly aggressive government. And so they, they wanted, um, and that's one of the principles of liberty, it's principle 21, that they wanted strong local self-government uh, to determine how to solve the problems. But it, it was up to them though, to be a part of protecting these inalienable rights, these God-given rights. So principle number eight talks about men are endowed. So what are, what are these inalienable rights? Well, they're the rights that God gives us so we can keep his commandments. They're the God-given rights from the designer. God is our designer. We are his design. He knows how best we're going to prosper and flourish and be happy. All right, he has set forth, set forth this created order of the universe. 
right? These God-given rights he's given us because we are his heirs. So inalienable rights are God-given rights that he gives us that enable us to keep his laws, his commandments, okay? Our founders didn't believe that the basic rights of mankind came from some sort of social compact or king or, or emperor or governmental authority. They believed the rights came directly and exclusively from God. And um, William Blackstone, remember that great uh, lecture on the law? He taught the first law classes at, classes at Oxford University in England. He wrote the commentaries on the law. He talks about, you know, what an inalienable right is. Let's see that next slide, Hannah. He said, uh, William Blackstone, he was uh, lived from 1723 to 1780, and his lectures on the law were widely read throughout the world and, and widely read in America by our founders. He said, those rights then, which God and nature have established and are therefore called natural rights, such as our life and liberty, need not the aid of human laws to be more effectual, effectually invested in every man than they are. Neither do they receive any additional strength when declared by the municipal laws to be inviolable. On the contrary, no human legislature has the power to abridge or destroy them unless the owner shall himself commit some act that amounts to forfeiture. All right, so that's what William Blackstone, who our founder studied, had to say about inalienable rights. Now, our founding fathers didn't list all of our inalienable rights in the Constitution or in the Declaration of Independence, but they used wording that was very similar to Blackstone's phrases, that God has endowed all mankind with certain inalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, that, that wording comes straight out of the Declaration of Independence that Thomas Jefferson wrote. And he studied Blackstone. All the, all the um, founders studied. Remember, they were reading out of the same books. They were studying, going to the same sources. So an inalienable right or natural law would be such uh, the right to self-government or the right to bear arms for self-defense or the right to own and develop uh, or dispose of property or to make personal choices, the right to choose a mate. All these are in the 5,000 year late book if you're wondering where they're coming from, but they're, uh, they're, in, they're in holy writ. And we'll talk about that in principle nine in just a moment. But the right to free speech, to enjoy the fruits of your labor, the right to privacy, the right to a fair trial. So remember these inalienable rights are the, the laws that God gives us that enables us it's, it's our inalienable rights are the rights that God gives us that enables us to keep his laws. So let me give you an example. So God gives us a law to tithe, right? In the book of Malachi, Malachi in the Old Testament, tithe a tenth of your increase. And so we therefore have an inalienable right to choose our profession or to choose maybe what level of education that we want to obtain. So we will have the means to be able to pay our tithe. Or we also are given a right to life. And so that's associated with the commandment not to kill. And it's also associated though with the right to defend ourselves. Right. And so this would be a good exercise, possibly, to go through these inalienable rights and to determine what commandment or law is associated with this God given inalienable right. So our property rights 
were essential to uh, our pursuit of happiness. The property rights is, is a part of the three great natural rights that we'll talk about in just a moment. But, uh, you know, some scholars might have wondered when Thomas Jefferson said, you know, all men are endowed with certain rights, among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But everyone at that time in the history knew exactly what the pursuit of happiness was. It pertained to property. Let's see the next slide, Hannah. John Adams said it well. He said, all men are born free and independent and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberty, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. Now, property really is at the heart of a constitutional republic. The right to be able to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Look, you've earned it. You've worked for it. It is yours. Being able to own your labor is represents everything the freedom and liberty are about. But our founders were very sensitive about putting the right to property in the Declaration of Independence because uh, they didn't want to enshrine the notion of slavery. They didn't want to give any more credibility to the notion that man could be property, right? So um, ben, Fra ben Franklin actually had a conversation with Thomas Jefferson because I think it originally was life, liberty, and property, and they changed it to the pursuit of happiness. Now, the three great natural rights, Blackstone talks about this, was the right of personal security, okay, to defend yourself to life, and the right of personal liberty to be able to choose for yourself, and then the right of private property. And this is where our founding fathers, you know, and, and, and certainly Thomas Jefferson, who embedded that into our declaration, got that. Um, let's see the next slide. Thomas Bastiat. Have you heard of Thomas Bastiat? He came uh, around, he was born in 1800, died in 1850. He was a, um, uh, he wrote the book called The Law, Bastiat, The Law, that talked about the proper role of government. He was a studier of Adam Smith, uh, the great economic principles that, you know, our founders used um, uh, to determine the uh, capitalism and free market. And um, I, I hold up this book right here. Maybe, Hannah, we can just see this. Um, this is, have you heard of the Tuttle Twins, the cute children books that break down kind of difficult principles, maybe? And, and you know, he has like 13, Hunter Boyack is the author, 13 different types of books about the free market, about um, the creature on Jekyll Island, the Federal Reserve, the Golden uh, rule. It just breaks down concepts <laughs> that might be difficult to explain in a children's book. So anyways, we have this little book called The Law, which is kind of a breakdown. Look at, look how cute with illustrations of George Bastiat. Let's see that quote. Let's go to that slide. But George Bastiat talks about the proper role of government and when it comes to private property and how the government shouldn't be able to, to uh, plunder other people's property. George Bastiat said, life, liberty, and property do not exist because men have laws. On contrary, it was the fact that life, liberty, and property existed beforehand that caused men to make laws for the protection of them in the first place. 
Okay, so on what basis are our inalienable rights to be protected? This takes us to the ninth principle. Let's see that next slide. Our founders understood that to protect these God-given rights, and I don't believe my little, my little daughter did the PowerPoint. I don't think that's quite the word, but to protect man's rights, God has revealed certain principles of divine law. That's the actual wording. Got this from our 5,000 year lead. Okay, so our founders knew that, that, look, our laws didn't necessarily come from the Supreme Court justices or legislators or even state constitution. To protect our God-given inalienable rights, God has revealed a certain principle of divine law, all right? And what is that divine law? Let's see the next quote. Well, Blackstone said it very succinctly and it's not confusing at all. Let's see that slide from Blackstone where he said, the doctrines thus delivered, we call the rebuild or divine law and they are to be found only in Holy Scripture. These precepts, when revealed, are found upon comparison to be really a part of the original law of nature as they tend in all their consequences to man's felicity, or that felicity means um, happiness or bliss, all right? So our founders understood that to protect God's rights, we have to found our laws on the divine laws that are found in holy writ scripture here. And uh, I think it's interesting, the divine pattern of law for human happiness requires a recognition of God's supremacy over all things. There's a beautiful quote in the book I'm reading under sound principles of law, all based on God's law, where it talks about the laws for human happiness require that you acknowledge that there is a God and that we shouldn't attribute God's power to false gods and that we should use his name uh, in reverence and not take it in vain do, do these laws sound familiar and that we should set one day aside to uh you know to worship him and that um in order to strengthen families we need to honor parents we need to maintain the sanctity of marriage and not commit adultery after marriage and that life is sacred right and that, um, uh, and that we shouldn't lie or we shouldn't steal or we must be willing to work for what we have and not scheme to get things that might belong to other people. Now, this is, you know, and I, we recognize this as the Ten Commandments. And so, you know, I think it's interesting, particularly at this time as this, this you know, right to life, the sanctity of life is under attack again, as we were seeing even within the Republican Party, kind of a weakening on the stance for, for life, that, you know, it was very clear how God felt about life. I mean, all you have to do is go to his divine law, his holy writ. There's dozens and dozens of scriptures that talk about this right to life and how God reveres life, how he talks about we were wonderfully made and he knew us before he, he formed us in the womb and that children are a heritage unto the Lord and that you know man is to leave his family and to cleave unto his wife and they're to multiply and procreate, we're created in his image and thou shalt not kill. So it's interesting to me that the arguments today are, you know, people are saying, well, it's the government's job, it's government's 
It's the state's rights to protect the right of a woman to abort a baby. That has never been a right to kill, particularly to kill the most vulnerable and innocent, the unborn child, right? And so if anything, you know, killing a, a baby is an inalienable wrong, right? Uh, thou shalt not. And uh, we know Cicero said that laws that go against the natural order of the universe, the supreme being, the creator, those kind of laws are a scourge to humanity and they justify the cursings from heaven. So, you know, I, I have to be honest with you, when my daughters went off to college, they came back a little sympathetic to this notion that, well, you know, my body, my choice, maybe a woman, it's her body, she should have, a, you know, the right to do what she wants with her body. And uh, they were confused by that. And that, you know, those were, that was a tense year or two when the girls were, you know, a little sympathetic, you know, to some of the clever arguments they're he hearing in the universities, even though we had clearly taught them otherwise in the home. But, you know, it's interesting as we just kind of stayed the course and we had heated conversations about this. My one daughter at one point, she said, mom, it just was like a light that went off. She said, why am I defending something that I would never do myself? Now, if any of your children or your grandchildren are trying to, you know, defend the right to kill the unborn, which is contrary to God's law that we're talking about, that God has made very clear in his, you know, holy writ, uh, Tressie is going to put a link to a, a, a little animated I think it's just a couple of minutes. I couldn't even watch the whole thing on what abortion is. What are the tools? What what does it actually look like to remove a baby from the womb? And, and Al sent it to me yesterday and, and he sent it to all of the kids and my little 15 year old, because we talk about these issues in our family devotional and I read her the headlines of yesterday's outcome of the election. And she said, mom, I, I couldn't, I couldn't even watch it hardly. I started to cry. And so uh, if, if you feel like you need this tool to, to, to really explain and to show what it takes to remove a baby from the womb of a woman, oftentimes I kind of think it's like Cicero who said, how can people not believe that, you know, there's a supreme being? They, they just are not thinking clearly about it. And I think girls nowadays have young girls particularly being convinced that you know it's just a clump of cells it's not really a baby when you abort and so if if you want to you know pass this on to loved ones or people that you know that might be confused about this what exactly is an abortion i would recommend having that and and sharing it with with uh, those that you feel inspired to but you know i just have to um also, but you know, Al came home and he had just listened to Jason Whitlock on The Blaze. He has a podcast called Fearless and Jason Whitlock was talking about, you know, the softening of uh, 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 the pro-life stance we're seeing we might see over the next year as it becomes the issue uh, in the upcoming elections. There's a wonderful organization called preborn.com and it will pay for a sonogram for women that are are going to get an abortion and it's been shown that if women can see the sonogram of the baby before they go in for the abortion and i'm trying to get that exact statistic that a large number of them will not abort that baby 
Preborn, this company, provides uh, these sonograms for free for women that want to get abortions. They're $28. And so uh, they save over 200 babies a day. There are these preborn um, uh, clinics all around the country in the major cities. And so you can actually contribute $20 a month uh, for a sonogram. And I have one of the Moms for America that has done a lot of work um, in trying to uh, stop women from getting abortions. And she said, she's given me, Gerald McAleo from New Jersey has given me that statistic too, that if a woman can just see that sonogram and see that little beating heartbeat, a great majority of them will not uh, kill the baby. And so this preborn company at preborn.com and the link will be in the chat, actually provides for two years that that baby will, that mother will keep that baby will help assist the mother with diapers and food for two years. So imagine what a wonderful way, $20 a month to pay for a sonogram to help be a part of saving uh, these little babies. Okay. Um, I have, I feel like I could say a little bit more about this, this, you know, God's law not to kill and how this law is being so misconstrued and confused and, and, and women are even actually some of the greatest advocates of, you know, killing the, the preborn, the unborn. Um, I, I'm not sure if you know anyone that's had an abortion or had an abortion yourself. I'm 54 years old. I've had a few friends when they were young girls have abortion and they're godly women now and they still are haunted by that no one really talks about the long-term ramification on a woman that aborts a child and this just uh last year when my young daughters who's 23 one of her roommates had an abortion and that little girl has just spiraled since that episode and it's just looks at it as a means of so many young women that are using it now as a means to uh, birth control oh i'm pregnant i'll just go in and get an abortion and even unknowingly subconsciously you know how that just reads giving up a part of themselves and their virtue uh and thinking you know that might be how they can find love and certainly uh the the boys oftentimes will pay the girls to abort that uh you know i'll stay with you this was the case of my little daughter's roommate I will stay with you, but you have to abort the baby. And of course, when she aborted the baby, he was long gone. And so she's not doing so well. And so, you know, the beautiful thing is I'm here to witness that God is real and his grace is so good and that we can feel that redemption and that healing. But, you know, if we can stand for life and be a part of speaking up on this issue because this issue is is only going to become more pronounced you know as as uh, as we head into the election years oh, uh, if the election year next year okay so divine law not only endows a man with inalienable duties but uh, as well as in, uh, not only endows us with the inalienable rights but inalienable duties known as public or private morality. And um, we're not going to get into that so much uh, today, but it's it's interesting. They give examples of what a public duties and private duties would be to uphold you know, our, our inalienable rights and God's laws. And there's also um, God's law of reparation for those that commit crimes. Let's see that next slide. Uh, it's interesting that the Anglo-Saxons and the ancient Israelites uh, 
you know, all kind of had this um, reparation to the victim for those that committed crimes. And, uh, and um, so I would, I would recommend that you go through and you read that. But the Anglo-Saxons there on the right and the Israelites, uh, the law that was enunciated by God was looked upon, they viewed it as sacred and not subject to change by human legislative bodies. To most Anglo-Saxons, the law was either divinely inspired. Now, remember, the Anglo-Saxons, many believe, were, were descendants of the lost tribes of Israel when the Israelites were scattered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians because the, the Anglo-Saxons have identical government structure to the Israelites' people law. And the Anglo-Saxons believed um, that the law either was divinely inspired or won by their ancestors being of such antiquity tradition that it would have been unthinkable to change it. So, which takes us to our, let's see the next slide, um, this concept that natural law, God's law constitutes eternal principles. Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter just a few years before he would die to Benjamin Rush who was a doctor, Benjamin Rush was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And in it, Thomas Jefferson talks about, you know, these, these principles in the Declaration of Independence that he wrote, he felt were going to be eternal principles carried on into some sort of eternal realm uh, that they believed in. And, um, and it says here, John Locke says, the law of nature stands as an eternal rule to all men legislators as well as others the rules that they make for man's action must be conformable to the law of nature i.e the will of god now understand this is who our founding fathers were studying when they wrote these inspired documents right and john locke was an english philosopher and physician he lived from 1632 to 1704 and uh, william blackstone also talked about the same uh, concept that these laws uh, were eternal laws all right so how then moving on to our last principle how can the people be protected from the autocratic meaning kingly authority of their rights kingly rights where does the source of sovereign authority lie is it in the kings that had pretty much existed throughout history up until that point when our founders were forming this new type of um, government no, principle number 10 says the God-given right to uh, govern is vested in the sovereign authority of the whole people, all right? Not kingly law, not, uh, you know, the divine right of kings. It, it's interesting, um, recently I was watching uh, on Amazon um, Prime uh, three seasons of a show called Victoria. It was Queen Victoria, and she reigned from 1837 to 1901. And she was the longest standing um, monarchy until Queen Elizabeth. So Queen Victoria ruled for 63 years. Remember, she married the German. They had nine children. And, um, and but just, just for FYI, Queen Elizabeth actually would go on to reign for 73 years. Okay, so she beat out Queen Victorian, but that was known as the Victorian era of England. Uh, up until, you know, it, and we began to shift uh, from this um, divine right of king to rule that was so pronounced in England 
and to now the monarchy is kind of more just ceremonial. We have a prime minister and a parliament. But during the 1600s, the royal families of England did everything in their power to establish this doctrine that they governed uh, the people by the divine right of king. In other words, it was their God-given right as of the king to govern. And Algernon Sidney, let's see that next slide, was actually beheaded by refuting that. Now, Algernon, he was an English politician and he lived from 1623 to 1683. And he said, no, there's no such thing as divine right of kings to rule over people. He insisted that the right to rule is actually in the people. Therefore, no person can rightfully rule people without their consent. And he was beheaded uh, be, because he said that. And John Locke felt the exact same way. John Locke lived during this time period as well. So he had to flee England uh, to Holland because he probably saw a beheading in his future as well. And John Locke would go on to publish two famous essays as well. That's the, the sovereign authority, the, the whole or complete authority to govern was vested in the rights of the people themselves, not in the hands of even today justices or behind closed doors with legislative leadership. It's it, the, in the rights of the people. And certainly our founding fathers, you know, held that same view that there was no place for this idea of a divine right of king, which had pretty much existed throughout history until around the 16, 1700s, that they prescribed that rulers really were to be servants of the people and that the sovereign authority to appoint or to remove a ruler rest with the people. That's what we would call elections today. And Alexander Hamilton, let's see uh, that next slide. He, he said that in the same spirit, the fabric of American empire ought to rest on the solid basis of the consent of the people. The streams of national power ought to flow immediately from that pure and original foundation, fountain, excuse me, of all legitimate authority based in the people. I love Alexander Hamilton. He has an interesting history. He was of illegitimate birth, uh, born in the Caribbean islands and came to America when he was about 12 on his own. He's kind of a man made, self made uh, man. And he was loyal to George Washington, was one of his officers in the Revolutionary War. He would go on to become uh, Washington's secretary of treasury. treasury. Um, Hamilton has a home in New York. It's about uh, on 130. If you can take the red line up, it's called the Grange House. And you can go through the home and you can kind of feel the spirit of the man. And, and we know he was killed in a duel with Aaron Burr. And he, um, Alexander Hamilton, is buried in the Trinity Church, which is right down in lower Manhattan, right by the St. Paul's. It's just a few blocks away from each other. St. Paul's Church. We talked about St. Paul's last week. These are all places. They're sacred spots that you can feel the greatness of these men and women and the events that transpired there. So put these kind of places on your bucket list. Okay, so our founding fathers acknowledged that the people are divinely endowed with the sovereign authority to a power to govern. And what happens is the question if those that are elected or appointed usurp the authority of the people and impose a dictatorship or some form of abusive government. Do you feel like you, you've seen that today with some of the leadership? 
Well, that will bring us to the fundamental principle uh, upon which our founders face this famous line in the declaration, principle 11, that it's the rights of the majority of the people to abolish or, or alter a government that has become tyrannical. And that typically would be had in fair and honest elections, right? We have a tyrannical ruler that is imposing his will on us. We don't elect him into office. So that's principle 11. Next week, we're going to study principles 11, 12, and 13. 12 is that the United States shall be a republic, not a democracy. We're going to talk about what a republic is and that the Constitution, Principle 13, should be protected, should the Constitution should be structured to protect the people from the human frailties of their rulers, okay? The whims of, you know, in, unvirtuous or morally unstable rulers. And so you can see that the first nine principles, uh, and we've done Principle 10, but the first one through nine are more spiritually based. And so we're gonna see Principles 10, through 27 from here on out, be a little bit more practical or pragmatic, talking about checks and balances and the you know proper role of government. And, and as we study these principles here on out, we're gonna, it's really gonna highlight where our nation has gone astray as we've transferred you know, power from we the people now to Washington, DC. And so that's why it's so important that people understand these principles. So, you know, the majority of the people can maintain, you know, a, a, a virtuous lifestyles and put in virtuous leaders. I, I mean, I think scripture, holy writ, divine law says that when the majority of people choose that, which is contrary to God's law, evil, then they are ripening in iniquity and the judgments of God will come against them and we don't we don't want that so as i always do i want to recommend that you review you go back and review principles eight let's see those um uh, next slide uh, hannah review the principles eight nine and ten that all mankind are endowed by god with certain inalienable god-given rights and that to protect these rights god has revealed certain principles of divine law and we learn that divine law is holy writ, right? Holy scripture. Mm -hmm. And that the God-given right to govern is vested in the sovereign authority, the whole complete authority of, in, uh, of people, complete authority of the people, right? And so um, next week we'll be on lesson number six. We'll be halfway through our series. So, you know, it's so interesting. I was reading in holy writ today in my, in the Bible, my Bible's getting kind of big now. I'm going to have to get a new one, I think. I can't write any more in it. I like to write in my books. But in Hebrews, it talked about God will put in their minds and in write in, put his laws in their mind and write it in their hearts. And as we adhere to these laws in our mind, in our hearts, that he will put, uh, put in, in the hearts of the Israelites, they were covenant people. God made covenant with his children all throughout history, as you study in Holy Writ. He said, as, as, as they put these laws in their heart and mind, I will be their God and they will be my people. And as I read that and I thought about that's covenantal language. It's that, that kind of language is intimate and it's binding. It signifies he's, he's claiming us and we're claiming him. He's our God and, and we are his and, you know, as we live and face, uh, you know, our days on this earth, it's that type of 
relationship, that covenantal relationship that will infuse us when hope, when we're worried about what we're seeing in the world, when we're worried about what we're seeing in the nation, when we're worried about what we're seeing in our communities and even within our families. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of covenantal relationship that kind of anchors us when, you know, people are running to and fro and doom and gloom and a little depressed. Let's see our last slide. So, you know, I always like to remind you when you're feeling a little low from the headlines of the days or things that you're experiencing in the relationships that you have, we look to God, we look to his laws, we look to the, the covenant, the American covenant that our founders made when our country was first formed, that really that they would stand on his side, on his side of the line. They would stay within the bounds that he has set. We don't look to government to solve our solutions or to be our deliverer. We look to God, to his godly law, and we keep that our families close. And we, we go over the headlines with our kids. We talk about the elections. We talk about the things that we're learning, in, you know, about the Constitution, the principles of liberty, and these great stories. We take them to these places so they can feel the spirit of these men and these women. And then we get on our knees just like George Washington did at Valley Forge and we ask, what can I do to be a part of upholding, you know, this work, you know, upholding this nation, upholding my family. And, you know, we, it might feel like a really tall order and it might feel like this is bleak, but, you know, imagine how George Washington felt in the fields of Valley Forge and how he stayed true to God and to the covenant that he made to stay true and look how it worked out. And, you know, God is a God of miracles then and he's a God, a God of miracles today. And so I hope that infuses you with hope. Moving forward, thank you so much for your attention. We're going to study this principle 11, 12, and 13 next week.